0: Hello, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. In today's episode, Senior Fellow Steve Pfeiffer explains why U.S. Russian arms control matters, why Ukraine wants to move closer to the European Union, and what Vladimir Putin's foreign policy priorities are. Pfeiffer was U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and a career Foreign Service officer, with a portfolio focused on arms control, Europe, in the former Soviet Union, Steve Pfeiffer, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Uh, I want to start with a confession, a personal confession. I went to college with the express intention of pursuing the career that you did have, okay, <laughs> in the foreign service, in your ambassadorship, in the State Department, Russian and Soviet studies. Uh, but life got in the way. I made different choices. Now, what did you study in college?
1: Uh, economics. Uh, but uh, what got me into the foreign service were really three things: uh, a desire to do public service. Uh, I spent uh, part of my so- uh, sophomore year abroad in Germany and I decided that I liked living overseas. So I wanted to have a career that opened up that possibility. And then third, uh, at Stanford, there was a very good arms control program. Okay. And I got very
0: interested in that and you really can't do arms control outside the government. <laughs> That's right. You were uh, ambassador to Ukraine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it like being an ambassador
1: It's a fascinating job. And I I was very fortunate in Ukraine. There are a lot of big issues going on. Uh, In the 1990s, there was a lot of uh, tension. So for example, uh, during my tour in Kyiv, we had both the vice president and the president visit. Secretary of State Albright came a couple of times. And I was also fortunate that we had a really good embassy team. Uh, So we were able to do a lot of things.
0: That's that's great. And now uh, Ukraine is back in the news. Can you talk about why Ukraine is in the news? and uh, kind of what it means and what we should be thinking about.
1: Well, Ukraine's in the news right now because it's uh, it has a choice to make. Um, Ukraine has negotiated with the European Union an association agreement that includes a free trade arrangement between uh, Ukraine and the European Union that would give Ukrainian exporters access to a huge European market. The EU has said that uh, Ukraine, though, first needs to make some domestic reforms, because Mm -hmm. over the last three years, unfortunately, there's been a fairly serious slippage on democracy within Ukraine. Now, the Russians are not happy about this. Uh, The Russians are applying some pressure. In fact, in uh, July and August, the Russians uh, basically turned off a number of Ukrainian imports into Russia. But if anything, that seems to have completely backfired and Ukraine seems more determined than ever to sign the association agreement at a summit with the European Union in uh, November. The question is, are they going to do enough on domestic changes. And this, in large part, may boil down to the release of Yulia Tymoshenko, a right. former prime minister who's been in prison for two years now. If they did that, I think that would ice the deal and they could sign the uh, association agreement, which would be a big step forward.
0: Now, she she is the uh, former prime minister associated with what I think was called the Orange Revolution. Is that true? That's correct, yes. And that was a few years ago?
1: Right. Uh, she, uh, I mean, Viktor Yushchenko was the, the main leader, but she was a very important part of the Orange Revolution, which took place in 2004. Uh, after a ballot that very obviously was stolen. And, and the thing that I think surprised everybody, including a lot of Ukrainians, was hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians took to the street in November, December, stood out there all night to protest this, and it basically brought the government around to schedule a new election, which Viktor Yushchenko won, and he appointed Timoshenko as his prime minister. Unfortunately for the Orange Revolution, is the two of them didn't get along very well. And the infighting prevented them from tackling some of the problems that Ukraine really needed to deal with. And I think a lot of uh, Ukrainians then were disillusioned with the very ironic result that in 2010, they voted in Viktor Yanukovych and he was the person against who the Orange Revolution had been targeted.
0: And so you think the Ukrainian people by and large would like to be part of the European Union?
1: Most polls show that now 50 plus percent of Ukrainians would like to be associated with the European Union. Part of that is because the living standards in the European Union are very attractive to Ukraine. Uh, I think though others, they they like the, the democratic standards, they like rule of law. It's also an increasingly important thing for Ukrainian business. I think a large number of Ukrainian businesses now would like to have that rule of law type society where they don't have to worry about the corruption and other arbitrary application of rules that they have to deal with today.
0: From Ukraine, I feel like we could pivot in our conversation to either Russia or arms control, which is also about Russia. Let's go to arms control. Okay. What are the issues today and, and why do they matter? Sure.
1: Well, you know, we're now in the third year of uh, implementation of the new Strategic Arms reductions Treaty, New START, which was signed by President Obama and then President Dmitry Medvedev of Russia back in 2010. And that treaty requires that the United States and Russia each reduce to no more than 1,550 deployed strategic warheads on 700 deployed strategic missiles and bombers. So it moves in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But I think a question people still ask is we're still having 1,550 deployed strategic warheads more than 20 years after the end of the Cold War, more than two decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And while the treaty leaves us, I think, in a fairly stable situation— The question is, do you still need this large number of nuclear weapons? Moreover, the New START Treaty covers only about 35 percent of the American arsenal. It doesn't cover, for example, non-strategic nuclear weapons and that's an area where the Russians have a large numerical advantage. That's very much of concern to our allies. It was of concern to the US Senate when they ratified the New START Treaty in 2010 and it's hard to see uh, us being able to change that advantage without looking to arms control. And likewise, their are reserve strategic weapons in an area of American, uh, numerical advantage that also are not covered uh, by the New START treaty. If you take a warhead off a deployed ballistic missile and put it into uh, reserve status, for purposes of arms control, the warhead
0: just disappeared. Very briefly, what's the difference then between a strategic and a non-strategic weapon yeah. in this context? Yeah. This is
1: actually something that, that people have a hard time defining and, and yeah. definitions will differ. The New START treaty has very explicit definitions. Uh, If it's on a land-based intercontinental ballistic missile, that is a ballistic missile that can fly more than 5,500 kilometers, it's strategic. If it's on a ballistic missile on a submarine, that is a missile – but that is defined as a missile that can go farther than 600 kilometers, that's strategic. Or if it's a missile or a a cruise missile or a a, a bomb on a strategic bomber, that's strategic. So there's some – you capture systems by saying they're, they're on strategic delivery systems. And then the question becomes: What's? How do you define everything else? I use the term non-strategic to try to capture everything else. But if you talk to people in the United States, Europe, or Russia and try to come up with a de- set of definitions—strategic, non-strategic, tactical—you'd probably get very different answers.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how are the two sides doing in meeting their obligations under the treaty? this many years later? Yeah.
1: Both sides are actually reducing. In fact, the Russians are on on three of the limits in the treaty. The Russians have already reduced to below those limits. Uh, The limits don't fully kick in until February of 2018 because the treaty gives each side seven years to implement the reductions. Uh, The United States is still above all three numbers. Uh, One thing I would like to see and I think the United States could do relatively easily is there's no reason that we have to wait until 2018 to reduce our deployed strategic warheads. It's actually relatively easy to take warheads off ballistic missiles. So that's, I think, a step that the administration could take. Uh, it would not give up any meaningful military capability, but it would reinforce the administration's uh, policy, which it announced back in 2010, of reducing the number and role of nuclear weapons in American policy.
0: Why is it important to think in terms of these uh, these hard numbers, 1,550? Why not 2,000? Why not 1,000? Why not go to 500 on each side? Well, part
1: of it is, is how you approach the idea of nuclear reductions. Uh, my, my guess is that the best way to, is going to be in a step-by-step process. So uh, my colleague at Brookings, Michael Hanley, we wrote a book last year called The Opportunity, Next Steps in Reducing Nuclear Arms. And our suggestion was that the United States and Russia, as a next step, negotiate one more bilateral treaty in which you would capture all U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons, strategic, non-strategic, deployed, non-deployed, and you'd basically cut them in half. So from a number of maybe 4,600 to 5,000 each, each side would come down to some maybe 2,000 to 2,500 total nuclear weapons. Now, we chose that number in part because it was difficult for us to see the Russians going lower than that without bringing third countries in. And our argument was, Having one more bilateral negotiation will be hard, but it will be easier than if you have five or six countries around the table. But I think after, if you could get to that level, to go below that, you probably have to begin to bring in third countries, starting with Britain, France, and China. And that makes the process more complex.
0: I'm glad you brought in third countries. That's that's also on my mind. When we talk about the U.S. and Russia bringing down their nuclear arsenals, what effect does that have on the other nuclear powers, both declared and… Non-declared. Yeah. Well,
1: I think one of the reasons that the United States should continue to pursue further nuclear reductions is to enhance our credibility when, with regards to pushing back against nuclear proliferation because the United States and Russia, even under the New START Treaty, are still going to have 90 to 95 percent of the nuclear weapons in the world. So if we're not seen as making an effort, an active effort to reduce those weapons, it's awfully hard to go to China and say, don't build up or go to Iran and say, don't build a nuclear weapon. Now, I'm very much a realist on this. A new American-Russian agreement is not going to cause an overnight change in attitudes in North Korea or Iran. But what I think it will do is give us greater credibility with other countries. And those are the countries that we want to turn to diplomatically to motivate them to apply pressure on on, on the countries who are behaving badly in the proliferation area. And for example, uh, if you go back and you look in 2010, the Obama administration signed the New START Treaty It issued a new nuclear posture review that talked about reducing the role and numbers of nuclear weapons in American strategy. And since that period, we've had much greater success in terms of cranking up countries to apply greater sanctions on the economic side against Iran to the point where this seems to be having a real impact on thinking in Tehran. So, again, I'm not sure it affects directly what happens in North Korea and, and, and Iran, but I think it does give us greater diplomatic leverage to bring third countries to put pressures on those countries that are behaving badly in the proliferation area,
0: and so thinking beyond that, what about zero nuclear yeah. weapons? I know you're a member of an organization called Global Zero. Yeah, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I support the elimination of all nuclear weapons. Although I'm not sure we could ever make that happen; it, it's going to be a long struggle. But I'll give you two basic reasons why I support the goal. You know, first of all, if you look over the history of the Cold War and, and nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. On the one hand, you can say nuclear deterrence worked. It kept the United States and the Soviet Union from a conflict when those two countries were opposed in military terms, political terms, ideological terms. But you also have to say that at a couple points, we got really, really lucky. The Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy overrode the recommendation of its advisors and did not invade Cuba, but instead imposed a naval blockade. Well, what we learned later on was that the commander of Soviet forces on the island couldn't launch a missile against the United States, but he did have release authority for tactical weapons in the event of an invasion. One other case, 1979, for about eight minutes, the North American air defense headquarters believed that the United States was under attack by Soviet missiles. Uh, Their computer showed 500 missiles having been launched, and things Mm happened. People began to make calls to Washington, uh, alert crews for b 52 bombers, which at the time sat on runways with nuclear weapons on board, went to those crews, were spooling up the engines. And it was only when they began to call the actual radar stations and say, do you see any tracks? And the radar station said, it's all clear that they realized that there was a problem. And it found out somebody had inserted a training tape into the wrong computer. Oh and they were watching a training exam. So I, I think the question is, are we always going to remain lucky, particularly when you have more countries with nuclear weapons? The second reason why I like a world without nuclear weapons, and this would be if you could verifiably and I emphasize verifiably eliminate all nuclear weapons, for the United States, that's a pretty good situation. We have friendly neighbors in Canada and Mexico. We have the protection afforded by the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. And we have the world's most powerful conventional forces. Now, certainly that world's going to entail some risks. And you don't want to make the world safe for large-scale conventional war. But I think we've reached the tipping point where the risks of keeping nuclear weapons outweigh the risks of trying to move towards a world without nuclear weapons. And I just conclude by saying I think getting to zero is very hard. I'm not sure we can do it. But I think you can design a step-by-step process where if you got stuck, say, on step three, you'd still be in a more secure situation than you are today.
0: Until we get to that point, if we can get to that point, considering what went wrong in the past with, with these accidents, mistakes, miscommunications, and considering that there are still thousands of live nuclear warheads in the world, some pointed at our major cities. Are we, are we any safer today than we were, say— 25 years ago when we were watching The Day After and Red Dawn and really consumed with this Cold War mutual assured destruction issue? I'm going to give you an answer that's yes
1: and no. (laughs) Yes in the following sense. During the Cold War, there was a low probability or low possibility but still a non-zero possibility of a major nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union that would have been civilization ending for both countries. Today, that is infinitesimally close to zero. But what I fear is that for the current generation, they're perhaps more likely to see the detonation of a nuclear weapon in anger than was, was uh, likely during the Cold War because you have more countries with nuclear weapons. Uh, some of these governments are you know, of questionable stability. You look at North Korea. You look at the situation between India and Pakistan, where some in Indian Pakistan say, well, look, the United States and the Soviet Union were able to maintain a deterrence relationship and didn't go to war. And I say, yes, but we came very close a couple times. And second, if you look at the history between India and Pakistan over the last 45 years, they've already gone to war three times. (laughs) So I'm not sure that you can take that American-Soviet experience and then say that's going to make you feel comfortable about India and Pakistan. So that's my concern is you, you may not have the danger that there was during the Cold War of a major nuclear exchange, but you could have the possibility, the greater possibility than during the Cold War, of nuclear weapon and then maybe some nuclear weapons being used in anger. And I think that ought to be of concern.
0: Let's move on to Russia, America's partner in this um, strategic arms reduction. But in the non-nuclear sense, what is going on with US-Russian relations? I know there was this famous reset earlier in the Obama administration. But just recently, Obama canceled a a meeting uh, with President Vladimir Putin.
1: Yeah. Well, let me start with the reset, which I actually think was a success. But I I see the the objective of the reset, at least as it was originally articulated back in 2009, was to take the U.S.-Russian relationship, which in 2008, in the aftermath of the Russian-Georgia conflict, was at its lowest point in – well, since the end of the Cold War. And so they wanted to restore a more positive momentum of the relationship. And I think they succeeded in that case. Uh, they concluded the New START treaty. Russia became more helpful on Afghanistan in terms of allowing supplies to go to Afghanistan, and Russia was more helpful on Iran, including applying an arms embargo on Iran. So there were successes up to say 2010, 2011. And if it, the administration, probably should have said we've now done it with reset, it succeeded and then moved on. The question has been sustaining those successes. I think what's happened since then are a couple of things. First, there was a certain amount of drift in the relationship in 2011 and 2012 when both Russia and the United States focused on their presidential election campaigns. It was followed then when uh, President Putin was re-elected, but I think because of domestic politics within Russia, uh, he was surprised by the strength of demonstrations that followed the parliamentary elections in 2011. And he has, I think, adopted a new domestic course, a significant element of which is portraying the United States as an adversary. Uh, And and that's made it perhaps more difficult to deal with Russia. It's also caused irritation. I mean, what the Russians can't do is you can't segregate the message that you broadcast to your domestic public from the message that leaks out overseas. And and so in terms of accusing the United States of of motivating the demonstrations – uh, being intent on doing all sorts of things interfering in Russian society and such, it, it's created a bit of, a, of tension. And it's also uh, on the arms control side. Uh, basically, it's not clear that the Russians are prepared to move beyond the New START treaty. And that was one of the issues when the, the White House uh, in August announced the postponement of the bilateral summit that had been planned between Presidents Obama and Putin in Moscow. What the White House said was, look, on the big issues that are on the agenda for the summit, on further nuclear reductions beyond New START, on resolving the differences between the sides on, on missile defense questions, on building a, a, a broader uh, trade and investment relationship, they said the Russians haven't engaged. You know, there's been no response to our offers on New START. There's been no response to our proposal for transparency on uh, on missile defense systems. And so the White House basically concluded that this visit to Moscow was going to be little more than a photo op. Uh, and, and they weren't prepared to go on those terms. They, they wanted to use the summit to actually push and achieve some some progress on tangible issues. And they concluded in August that that was not going to be possible and that the summit therefore made
0: no sense. On missile defense, I remember when I was much younger, when I was in college, it was all about Reagan's strategic defense initiative. And I, I, knew when, I understood then why the Soviets were upset about it. But- I haven't heard about missile defense issues no. uh, lately. What what are the missile defense issues?
1: Well, basically, um, the uh, United States has been building a limited missile defense capability to defend the United States, and it's been American policy since going back to the Bush forty one administration not to try to have the Reagan esque vision of a missile defense system that could protect us against everything, because they pretty much concluded that we had neither the technology nor the resources to make that happen. But instead, the policy since the early 1990s has been to have a capability to defend the United States against a limited ballistic missile attack such as might be mounted by North Korea or Iran in the future if they were to ever uh, obtain a reliable intercontinental ballistic missile capability. Uh, And it specifically rules out the idea of trying to defend against a Russian attack simply because a Russian attack would be so large. Now, the Russians have uh, expressed concern – that the capabilities that the united states are building could undermine the russian deterrent and i'm sympathetic to the russian position in principle i mean mm-hmm. if you have if you have two sides with roughly equal strategic forces off strategic offensive forces and one side builds up a missile defense capability that can negate part of the other's offensive forces you undermine that balance but today the gap between offense and defense is so large that it shouldn't be an issue uh, In February of 2018, the United States and Russia each will be able to have 1,550 deployed strategic warheads. At that time, at a maximum, the number of American interceptor missiles that could engage a strategic warhead will be 44. And so when you're looking at 44 interceptors against 1,550 warheads, I mean, there's not an issue here. That gap is so large that it's not something that you need to worry about. But the Russians
0: continue to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, to some degree, I, I feel like talking to you, I'm still – I'm in a master class in college talking about the the Soviets and overwhelming our defenses and mutual mm-hmm. assured destruction. It's it's still very interesting yeah. mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the sense that to some degree, this kind of thinking is still going on. Although mm-hmm. the the threat is almost, as you said, non-existent, mm-hmm. at least between the United States and Russia. Also on, on Russia, you recently wrote in the Moscow Times that – President Obama might find President Putin, quote, irrelevant Mm -hmm. uh, for the remainder of uh, Obama's term. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I I think it really explained the reason that the White House chose to pull the plug on the planned summit for Moscow in September, is that if – when you look at the U.S.-Russia relationship, on a lot of issues now, certainly the sides are engaged. And Secretary Kerry and Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, by all accounts, have a very good working relationship. They've met – you know, many times. I think it's over a dozen times in the, last, uh, in the last seven months. So you have that working level. But the question is on issues at the presidential level, when you look at the sorts of issues that President Obama would like to move on, I think there's a big one, nuclear reductions. He would like to move on nuclear reductions. He would like to do more than the New START treaty as part of his arms control legacy. But if President Putin chooses not to play on that, then it's not clear to me that Putin is going to have a lot of relevance for Obama's agenda. I mean, on, on issues, you know, for example, Iran. You know, the Russians don't want to see a nuclear-armed Iran, so we'll continue to cooperate on that. On Afghanistan, if the Russians, the Russians want to see a stable Afghanistan after 2014, because they know that if Afghanistan. Collapses into chaos. It's a much bigger problem for for them and for their Central Asian neighbors than it is for the United States, you know, eight thousand miles away. So the the point was that unless Putin chose to engage on some of these questions that were important to Obama, Obama might just conclude that you know there's not much value in working with Putin. I can leave the relationship to Secretary Kerry and Foreign Minister Lavrov, and I'll take my time, which is very very limited, and work it elsewhere.
0: So what what do you think? Some of President Putin's priorities are for Russia? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think President Putin, uh, I mean, his, his major priority right now is to rebuild Russian influence in the post-Soviet space. Now, I don't think that Mr. Putin is trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Uh, even he understands that the Soviet Union is a part of history. But what he wants to do is have a situation in which neighboring states, Ukraine, Ukraine, Uh, Belarus, the Central Asian states, those states that once were part of the Soviet Union on big issues, think about Moscow's reaction before they make a decision. He wants to have influence in those places. And and this is precisely the problem right now that Moscow has with Ukraine, is Ukraine's decision to sign the association agreement is going to move Ukraine hugely towards the West. The Russians aren't happy about that, and they're trying to block that. Uh, My own sense is that, in fact, though, that the Russian tactics not just this year, but in previous years, have been counterproductive, and if anything, are pushing Ukraine more quickly towards the West. So that's their focus, and the Russians have come up with a number of institutional suggestions. They talk about a customs union now with Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, which they would like to see evolve into, sort of a counterpart to the European Union. Um, but so far, countries like Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, look at that, and they're not very interested. They're much more interested in dealing uh, with the West and the European Union. A second foreign policy for priority for Putin is basically – and this gets to a self-image of Russia as a superpower on par with the Soviet the sort of influence it exercised during the Cold War. He wants Russia to be a player and, and this is what you saw in Syria. When the Russians saw the opportunity, this plan that they – idea that they put forward on working to eliminate chemical weapons from Syria was an opportunity really for Russia to put themselves center stage on the Syrian question perhaps pull the United States away from the idea of a unilateral military strike and move this question back into the UN Security Council, which is very important for Russia because if the issue stays in the Security Council, the Russians
0: have a veto. This might be – it is an extremely theoretical question, but is Russia's status as a superpower today dependent on it being a nuclear power? I
1: think if you look at Russia's power statistics today – Um, Their claim to being a superpower really rests on two issues. First of all, nuclear weapons and that may be one reason why Russia is more reluctant uh, than we would like in terms of reducing below uh, the new start levels is they want to have lots of nuclear weapons because that establishes them as a nuclear superpower on par with the United States. My argument is that you could cut the United States and Russia each in half down to say 2,000 nuclear weapons. And each country would still have six or seven times as many nuclear weapons as any third country. So they would still be a superpower in nuclear terms. Uh, but the Russians haven't yet bought out that logic. And then I think the second area that Russia has where it's a superpower status is its ability to produce oil and natural gas. And it's an energy superpower. Although that's actually both an asset and I think it's also um, a liability for Russia. Because as long as the economy relies on pulling, pumping things out of the ground, uh, they, they haven't been doing as much as they could in terms of building a modern high-tech uh, economy uh, that takes advantage of the abundance of smart, you know, and bright uh, young Russians. And it's unfortunate, but when you look around the world and you look at countries outside of Russia and you ask, what do the Russians make that people want to buy? Weapons maybe, perhaps nuclear reactors, you know, but nobody talks about their latest Russian car or their latest Russian television or their latest Russian computer. And so I think the, the asset of having all of this energy is perhaps holding them back from taking some decisions, which could be hard in terms of reforms, but that would open up the intellectual high-tech possibilities in, in Russia that would build a 24th, 21st century economy.
0: A lot of these issues are on the agenda of the Brookings Arms Control Initiative and you're the mm-hmm. director of that uh, and many others also on the agenda for the Center on the United States and Europe. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, the Arms Control Initiative and some of the issues that you're working on sure. and your colleagues are working on in the future?
1: Yeah. The Arms Control Initiative, we're looking at uh, several things. Uh, first of all, in the US-Russia context, you know, what can you do to move beyond the new START treaty? Uh, how would you tackle the question of non-strategic nuclear weapons? Because we are getting close to the point where it's hard to further reduce deployed strategic weapons unless you do something about the non-strategic weapons. That, that, that's a, and the Senate made that pretty clear in the resolution of ratification for the New START treaty back in 2010. We're looking at the questions of missile defense. Are there ideas? And there's some ideas that we've tried to share with the U.S. government about transparency, for example, in Instead of having um, a a limit on missile defenses, which I would argue you don't need now, but at least having the United States and Russia be very transparent about their future missile defense plans in a way that would allow the Russians to say, okay, we understand where the Americans will be five or seven or 10 years down the road on missile defense. And we can take a look and say, is that a threat to our strategic forces or not? So those are some of the ideas in the US-Russia context. Uh, one thing that we're going to try to take a look at over the course of the next years is, is multilateralization of the nuclear arms process. I mean certainly between the two countries, the United States and Russia, since they'll control 90 to 95% of the nuclear weapons in the world, they have a primary responsibility to lead on, on future on further reductions. But nuclear arms control cannot forever be just an American and Russian process. So how could you begin to broaden that process, perhaps to bring in Britain, France, and China – Maybe not into a negotiation, but could those countries, for example, come to the point where they would say, as a unilateral commitment, they would not increase their numbers as long as the United States and Russia were reducing? And then another area that I think is going to be pretty exciting: We uh, Bob Einhorn, who used to be the senior advisor for nonproliferation questions of the Secretary of State, has joined us at Brookings. So the Arms Control Initiative we're now actually going to expand into the nonproliferation area and look at those questions. And this is great because Bob can work with a lot of the regional talent we have in the Saban Center, in the uh, in the Center on Northeast Asian Policy Studies, and look at the challenges posed by North Korea, Iran, the proliferation problems that arise in South Asia. So that'll be a new area for us because we can take advantage of, of Bob's expertise.
0: Well, I look forward to uh, following your continued uh, research and efforts, and I, I thank you for your insight and contributions, not just in this podcast, but throughout your career. Thanks very much. To learn more, visit brookings.edu slash ACI.